So you've got a podcast or an idea for a podcast or no ideas yet, but you want to start a podcast. Whatever stage you're at, G Media Solutions is here to help you take your podcast to the next level. We are a podcast production company based in Atlanta that specializes in audio recording, video live streaming, and all the elements you need to make your podcast thrive. To fulfill your podcast needs, contact us on Facebook and or Instagram at G Media ATL. Before the start of this episode, I wanted to tell you about another podcast that I am producing for my friend Aisha. It's called the Botanica Podcast. I wonder what she thinks of that pronunciation. But anyway, <laughs> uh, here's a trailer for the podcast. You can subscribe to it uh, anywhere you get your podcast, just like ours. Here it is. Welcome to the Botanica Podcast. This is your host, Aisha. Listen in as we discuss topics like love, health, sex, relationships, and even alternative medicine. Listen to the Botanica Podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are also on Instagram. Our handle is the underscore Botanica Podcast. Don't forget to stop by our Botanica. We have a lot to share. There's another podcast I want to tell you guys about. It's called The Barber and the Bartender. There's a barber, there's a bartender, and they talk about pop culture, sports, music. And of course, because one of them's a bartender, there's going to be a drink of the day and he'll give you a little history on different libations. So uh, tune into The Barber and the Bartender on Spotify, Apple Podcast. They're on Facebook. Here's the trailer for their podcast. Come to my chair, you catch a bait or get a taste. This shit gonna hurt tomorrow. Mm-mm. But it tastes good today. It's gonna hurt right now. I'm at the bar mixing up drinks and conversation. Yeah, no, I'm just a part-time dirtbag. Don't do that. You're a superstar. Yeah, we the ones you talk to and we your favorite. I'm a barber. You know what I'm saying? Niggas, got their, niggas put a goddamn perm in the hair, I know. You know what I'm saying? Just said I, that's I, my I, hero. You gonna hurt the First of all, niggas that have nappy hair, put permanent <laughs> hair, have baby hair. It's the barber and the bartender, the best podcast in the nation. By the time you hear this podcast, the right songwriter can turn your career upside down. Welcome to, by the time you hear this podcast, I'm Greg. I'm Ben. And we are back with episode 209. Ooh, 
That I don't know. I already forgot. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm slipping. Um, where are we at? Yes, 209. <laughs> um, we have, uh, took some, some time off um, trying to start a business, and uh, the schedules just did not line up. So uh, I'm going to bring us on the screen here. And there we are. Things, Greg. Hmm? You're doing big things, though, man. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to do it all. There's no time. <laughs> no time to do it all. Trying but to get this label off, man. <laughs> trying to get this label off the ground, man. Got signed these artists. They asking for money. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny you say that because you know what scene from New Edition came up the other day? Did you read your contract? Oh, or, or the or the scene where Boys the Men showed up outside the tour bus. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely it's where he storms into he storms into um, Gerald Busby's office. Oh yeah, yeah, and he and he learns the lesson, and that scene ends with "Welcome to the music industry." <laughs> <laughs> it's a great scene, man. It's a great scene. Tank turns it up, man. Tank yeah. turns it up. He should have got a he should have got a an Emmy for that or something, or an Image Award, <laughs> or at least an Image. Did he get an Image Award? No, not for that. Oh, he didn't. Okay, no. Brilliant movie making, man. Um. So, uh, yeah. Um, got some things going on here, and you'll hear about it at some point. Um. So, uh, let's just get into it. Um, there's a lot that we could cover that's happened over the past um, seven, eight, nine weeks. But uh, mm -hmm. we're not going to get to all of it. Um, no way we could. So uh, I guess we could just start off with. Um, uh, so I don't. It, it's you could tell me if it's the 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 highest streaming song of all time. But Blinding Lights is the first song to pass four billion streams. Billion with yep. a B. Um, yeah. So with all the streams from that song, the weekend is made about ten thousand dollars. So that's that's insane because like the the album came out like five years ago. Uh, twenty nineteen. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but to still have that kind of to resonate still that much five years later, where um it's the song still being streamed a lot yeah you know it the soon it could be enough streams where it would seem like every person on earth has heard it at least once and that's what it would seem like yeah that's that i don't know if that means that it's a good song but it does mean that it's makes it successful <laughs> it, it's successful somebody likes it you know I have nothing against the song. I, I like the song, but it, it's so, just crazy that for four billion uh, streams. So I'm looking and this is what. So I know you mentioned before we started recording that you thought Shape of You had reached four billion streams. Yeah, because that, so, that was the first one I saw that to reach two billion. Yeah, so it has. But I think Blinding Lights just reached it first. So um, 
So, oh, Blinding White Lights was the first to reach two billion. Four billion, but now Shape of You is back in the lead. Um, so, as of January twelfth, the weekend's Blinding Lights became the first to pass the four billion stream mark. Um, it passed Ed Sheeran's Shape of You as the most all-time streamed song. It says just over a year ago, and it is one of the two weekend songs um, with over two and a half billion streams, essentially. Um, so they say. <clears throat> so you said, of course, he got ten thousand dollars. Okay, that's not true. But it says, so what does that mean? Between $15.5 million and $17.5 million in royalties for the sound recording, with another $4.5 million or so in publishing, depending on which figures, um, you know, one uses. While some services pay more than others, um, Spotify generally generally pays 0.03, you heard that right, 0.03 cents and point oh no, sorry, 0.003 and 0.004 cents per stream. So... Three, you really got to put in work to do that. Three one thousandths of a cent. Yeah. Yeah. So, but as of, so according to chartmasters.org, which um, tracks this on a daily basis, as of now, while the weekend's blinding lights is still sitting at over a billion, um, excuse me, over four billion shape of you has surpassed it. At 4.6 billion is what they're saying is most recent. Um, when I looked at Spotify, that's not what it showed, but they're saying this updates daily and it gets um, yeah, set up to 4.2 billion streams. Blinding Light says at 4.1 billion. Perfect is at 3.9 billion. Despacito at 3.4 billion. And then rounding out the top five is this is wild. I, di- I didn't know he was this big. Someone You Love by Louis Capaldi. There, there are a lot 2. of there are a lot of sad people on TikTok. Yeah, I guess so. There, there's a what there's really a sad, gets me though. A sad component. Because they'll never have anything else that touches this. Heat waves by Glass Animals, three point one billion. Yeah, that's wild to me. There's like heat waves and then everything else. Like it's just <laughs> not even close. <laughs> and then there are other songs. <laughs> Basically. Like, I imagine the song that comes after that, after this one on that album, probably has like a hundred million just off of the strength of people forgetting to hit skip. <laughs> or just like, well, let's see what else they have. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the the blinding lights is still is still hitting for some people. And so is the shape of you um, yeah. still hitting. So we had the. Um, what do I ask you about this? Because th- this was this was funny to me. It's not it's not music related, but this was a funny story to me. Do you hear about mm-hmm. the, what's going with ESPN and the Emmys? Mm-mm, what happened? So basically, for like the last thirty years, ESPN had been submitting fake names to the Emmys. What? And had been winning. And what and then what they would do really? is because there was there were separate awards for production and for talent. So what they would do is submit names for production, fake names. And then if they win, they give those Emmys to the on air talent. So it would be like the on air talent won the Emmy. So basically, like if College Game Day won an Emmy. Right. Mm-hmm. But they didn't submit like Lee Corso. It would be like Lee 
I can't remember what name they use, but it'd be like Lee Kurtwood. And mm -hmm. if Lee Kurtwood won the Emmy, ESPN would get it, get the trophy, then re-engrave it with the name Lee Corso and give it to him. Where, did the did the on their talent know? Uh, clearly, they the had on, to know. The on their talent did not know. Oh. Like no one knows how really the sports Emmys like work as far as like how you get nominated, what kind of categories there are. But they would submit a they would submit a fake name as far as the production of it, not for the on air talent. But then when they would oh. win, they would re engrave okay. it with the on air talent's name. So he had like it. a few he had like a few Emmys taken away. But they did it for oh. like the whole game the whole game day um panel. So instead of like Desmond Howard, they put like Dirk Howard. Oh god. <laughs> um instead of like uh I think of instead of Kirk Herb Street, it was like um Kirk Street or Streeter or something like that. It was like they would just change the names to like, okay, we can give this one to, to them, you know. Um and they had been doing that for thirty years. So they And had no to, one caught on. No one caught on until last year. No, in twenty twenty two they caught on. And then ESPN finally admitted that yeah, they were submitting fake names. So they had to give all the Emmys back. It was like almost forty Emmys. That they had to give back. Wow. And the people who were involved were are banned, either banned from being nominated for the next two years, or they're just banned altogether from the Academy. What made them think to do that? <laughs> because they, they probably weren't winning the these awards. Like like I said, like they were doing it because the on air talent and the um, production are two separate categories and it's I guess it's very hard to get nominated in the on-air talent category so some of the names Dirk Howard Eric Andrews instead of Aaron Andrews mm -hmm. and Kirk Henry Kirk Henry yeah for, for Kirk Herb Street. I guess Herb Street is too like unique of a name you can't yeah, put like you, you dan herb street is. or something yeah, yeah you know you who that is <laughs> oh god that's so sad but i mean i don't know i guess people will take this as a as an opportunity to dunk on espn maybe they should be dunked on but it was funny and desmond howard put out a statement saying like it this it really messed him up because he was concerned for lee corso like how are you going to go to Lee Corso's house and and take the Emmys back? Like, y'all could have mine back, but I might smash oh, it to pieces. You're going to have to sweep up the pieces if you're coming to get them. <laughs> but Lee Corso, I mean, how old is Lee Corso? He's in his 80s. Has to be. You can't take that. Just let him, just let him keep them. I mean, they're, they don't mean anything. Like, are you going to come and like, take back the physical trophies? And reaward them to someone else. I don't know if they're going to do all that. Well, yeah, they're going to have to find, um, um, I guess what J Jake Corso or whatever. We got to go find Dirk Howard. Go find these people. <laughs> they don't exist. Go find them. Like just, 
I'll go up there. No, just find, just find, just find a Dirk Howard. Anyone named Dirk Howard here? Here's a name. Here you go. <laughs> Thank you for your service. He's 88 years old. I didn't know he was that old. Mm. Lou Holtz is 87. My goodness. Yeah. Uh. So. Um. Yeah, man. That, that it's. It's a. Uh, unfortunate. Um. Oh, and and as a matter of fact, the Emmys are tonight. Are they airing oh, are right they? now? Oh. Uh, yeah, they're airing mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> um, oh yeah, because they were postponed because of the writer's strike. So yeah. Um, Glad we got that cleared up. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, let's see what else we got here. So, uh, a Linda Ronstadt biopic is coming out. Um, and Linda Ronstadt will be played by Selena Gomez. Um, and it's going to be... I wonder how many people forget that she's an actress. <laughs> uh, she's been singing for so long, you know? It's also going to be directed by David O. Russell who uh, directed Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle. I've uh, heard some bad things about him. I'm I'm surprised they're getting him to direct this. Um, he has, I think he's had a reputation of someone who's like hard to work with. But um, for him to, but he's, he's had at least two successful films. Uh, well, two yeah. very successful films, um, and so it's like, yeah, it may be hard to work with, but y'all making money, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that, you know. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. We probably won't see that for another another couple of years, you know. We heard about the um, the Michael Jackson biopic uh, at least two it's years ago. Here. And it's not coming out and probably until 20, they said 2025, but it's probably going to be 2026 because at the same time, not only are, yeah, it's not about like transforming into that person, but what if they can't act? Now they got, now they got to learn how to act. <laughs> and, and then all the, and then include all the other production stuff that goes into it. So, um, but I think that'll be that'll be fun. I don't know what Linda Ronstadt's story will be exactly. I mean, okay, we're going to see where in Blue Bayou was written, and then uh, the song with Aaron Neville, and the song with James Ingram <laughs> from Five Goes West or An American Tale. Oh God! Oh man! Um, and I don't know. There'll be some other. There'll be some. There, there's a story there. That's why the movie's being made. So mm-hmm. I wonder what this, what the story is with her. So, um, because it's being made, I, I assume that it's interesting. So, but uh, I get the thing is like, can Selena Gomez? Uh, we're gonna see if she can actually act. Well, hey, you know, she was on Wizards of Waverly Place and Spring <laughs> That's range. So. I'll just say, and it was from um, an American tale, Five O Goes West. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Five O Goes West. Um, 
I, I mean, like, I, I guess to your point, you know, you got to teach him how to act. At least we know that she is a passable actor. So will she be more Jamie Foxx or will she be more Zendaya Coleman? We don't know. Mm. You know, will this be more Ray or whatever the name of the Aaliyah movie was <laughs> <laughs> featuring that was in there, right? Isn't that Coleman? That was uh, Aaliyah. Um, was that her name? Hold on. Aaliyah, the princess of R&B. Oh, my bad. That was Alexandra ship. My bad. Oh, uh, probably should have on... been Zendaya Coleman. I, don't, I can't remember yeah. what what show Alexander Ship is on now. She's on. She's she's on one of those Marvel shows, I think now. Well, she or, was in X Men. She played Storm in, in the X Men. X Men. She was in X Men. That's why I saw her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that'll be interesting. Um. Another. Um. So there's this movie. I haven't seen it yet. It's called The Holdovers. It has Paul Giamatti, um, who just won a Golden Globe uh, for his performance, and Divine Joy Randolph, who won a Golden Globe for her performance in the same movie. But in the movie, there was a... I guess it was interesting that... um, I I think his name is Lobby Siffer, or Sifri, probably Siffer. Uh, he's probably best known for Eminem sampling his song for My Name Is. And um, his song, one of his other songs was featured in The Holdovers. And now, like, it's getting it's getting buzz like all these years later. Uh, what do you think of like. Of when that happens with an artist. When they it's get- like decades later this is the song that's featured called crying laughing loving lying no i love it i was just actually talking about this with um with chris we've had on the podcast before about how like um it was some show that me and trent were playing uh we were playing a wedding and like you know the the people there there were kids there who were like you know seven eight nine years old and they were asking for like songs by fleetwood mac or brian adams and stuff like stuff that like had like is even old for us mm-hmm. so i know it's old for them <laughs> and that's the wonder of social media how it becomes like you have something happen it falls back into the cultural zeitgeist again and becomes relevant and i love it when that happens it's like giving a song like all new legs, you know? Um, Now, it's interesting that it happened like, so did it happen because the song was in the movie or? Yeah, basically. Okay, okay. Because I know that I see it sometimes happen with samples. Like someone will either like make a TikTok video that blows up about a sample or um, it just, um, well, yeah, I guess that's mostly where you see it. Like it blows up because of a sample. Um, 
or just you know some other video like the the, the cranberry juice drinking dude skateboarding <laughs> <laughs> who get who made dreams a top 10 single again so i i think it's awesome though i love it so yeah and this is the this is the song that um it's called i got the See if we can find the the spot. So yeah, that's the part that was sampled for My Name Is. And wonder like, where do you even find that? <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. It, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you know, and there are, it, that does, it doesn't, it happens with our time time, but there it's discovered like long, Maybe long after they passed, I think he's still he's still with us, still in the league. Still um, in the league, yeah. But you know, guys like uh, I think Nick Drake um, had an album called Pink Moon, and oh, back in the nineties, man. Yeah, and that became a um, it's a VW commercial, wasn't it? I think so. Now, when it happens like that, like back then. It was really interesting because we didn't have any way really but you know pre the explosion of google and everything like you just had to know somebody that knew something yeah <laughs> it, it was it was volkswagen pink moon that commercial was awesome so it's like um you know it's 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 interesting when when it happens like years later um, mm -hmm. and also there's this movie that came out uh, I think the movie's called Dreaming Wild I don't know if I told you about this but it's um, it's, what? it's called Dreaming Wild okay uh, it's this these brothers Donnie and Joe Emerson and they wanted to make music and they they lived on a farm in a small town in Washington state. And, um, their song was featured on an HBO show, um, uh, called love life. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of their songs and no one had ever like it. And it sounds like the, <laughs> what was it called? Like the bedroom pop. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that singer songwriter, but it's these, these guys that were like 16, 17 at the time and they weren't, uh, playing or really listening to the, the disco sound of the time. Like they're, you know, they're in a small town in Washington who knows what they were actually exposed to. Um, mm -hmm. and then I don't know if it was because of that show or, or shortly before, um, somebody at, I don't know if it was Rolling Stone or something. It might've been cause they always like, they always tout the obscure stuff, <laughs> but, um, some people found the album and then went and found them 
And it was kind of, and then there's, there's a movie made about it with Casey Affleck, where it's basically about what happened when they chased this dream. It's like they almost lost the farm because the da- their dad built a, their dad built a recording studio and mm. they made their album and it did nothing. <laughs> and, oh, wow. Uh, it's like they almost lost everything because of it. And one of them was still making music, you know, 30 years later. And then, you know, a journalist comes in like, hey, we found this album and we wanted to talk to you all about it because it was it's. It's. Um, it's that, you know, that that bedroom pop that would probably influence, you know, uh, a couple of generations later, you know, um, so I haven't seen the movie, but it was just like it was just an interesting story that, you know, it was these kids <laughs> trying to make music. And What's it, it called work. again? It's called Dreamin' Wild. That was the name of their album. That's the name of the movie too. Okay. And there's a dog. <laughs> um. But yeah. So um, I saw this. My watch list. <laughs> I saw this other story. I hadn't uh, read it, but it because um, I know a posted a link and and you brought it up too. Um, are Lil Nas X's provocations getting old? <laughs> well, I mean, I just put it this way: we made him a star off of them. We can't be mad when he continues to use them mm. to stay a star. Yeah. You know, like Old Town Road can only get you so far. And if you're being real, you could kind of call Old Town Road like a, a provocation. You know, it's this, you know, we didn't know at the time, gay black dude from College Park singing about being a cowboy. He's dressed up in cowboy gear. He's riding horses. And then next thing you know, he comes out of he's gay. And what did Dave Chappelle say in his new sketch? He's like sliding down a stripper pole down to hell. It's like this is what he's done. So, you know, you can't create a monster and then be mad when it stomps on a few buildings. Yeah. You know, if we if we are truly sick of it, then we need to stop paying attention to him. He'll he'll go away eventually, you know. <laughs> um I think it's I mean, I think it's only a matter of like maybe go to the well too many times. Mm-hmm. A few too many times, but um, it's just something that you can expect. Where he's going to, if he if he plan if he if his plan is to challenge people's ways of thinking or challenge their perspective, then by all means, it's art. <laughs> and if that's how you're looking at it, then then go ahead and do it. <laughs> so yeah, that's just how I see it. Um, but is it getting old? Maybe you might for the next project, you know, might have to look for a new approach because uh, well, then it's like we don't want to expect it necessarily, you know. So then you got to wonder, though, like not to say that he doesn't have talent, but like, can his music stand on its own? That should then be the question. Yeah. Since, you know, all of the music has kind of been accompanied by some sort of controversy. Does he need that controversy to sell or can the music stand on its own? 
and I'm not really the type of person, I'm not a fan of him. So I'm not really the type of person I think who can answer that question. But like just looking at his singles, like every song that has been successful has been has had something. Like you got Old Town Road, which had the cowboy aesthetic, Industry Baby, which had didn't have the video when they're in the prison and it's very homoerotic. Yeah. Montero is him let dancing the devil. And then I'm looking at some of these other singles that didn't really do too well, like Panini. How well did Panini really do? I, I I don't know. It was kind of a hit, but it was kind. Of, but it was like that. Okay, here's a second song before the that while we're trying to finish the album because he probably didn't have yeah. one yet. Um, so, I didn't yeah. realize though. Um, he is. I didn't realize here it's saying that a lot of Christians are really upset with him, and he's kind of trying to address it. So. I'm actually going to go in and, and, and kind of read this and see kind of what's going on because I, I kind of find that interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see if there was one other story that I saw. Oh, yeah. I had I had some saved posts from. Um, let's see if I can find it. So did you hear uh, most devs comment about Drake? That he's not hip hop. Yeah. I ignored it. I heard it. I didn't watch the video. Um, it seems very uh, gatekeepy to me. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like music in itself evolves. I didn't hear his exact reasons for saying that Drake was a hip hop. I just heard him say, like, you know, when I'm in a store, he's like, he put some more into pop and. I think he says like what grocery shopping music or something like that. Yeah, like, Target shopping at Target. Target shopping music. It feels very dismissive of an artist that maybe you're a little jealous has been more successful than you. Like, uh, there's this. It's so funny. It's like there's this narrative out here that a lot of people try to use that Drake can't rap, and it's like, have we forgotten? Well, th- okay, that's that's the thing. That's the thing, and I think that's where this is coming from, comes from. I guess for me, like, I don't really, I don't always go to, well, that person's just jealous or that person's just hating. You mm-hmm. know, I think about what's, what's their perspective on, or what's their art, their type of artistry and yeah. compared to something that Drake does. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not that Drake can't rap. It's that either he doesn't or it's kind of lazy sometimes. Um, to where like, I agree. I, it, so someone would say like the kind of stuff that he's put out since views, just, we're just going back to views. And so we're talking about in the last eight years, <laughs> it's been a long time. He's been, he been out for a while, y'all. <laughs> so in the last eight years, <laughs> <laughs> but the stuff that put out, it's just, it's, you know, he, he's sticking with trends. It's not that, okay, he's being not necessarily experimental or he's getting, he's getting better or he's, um, he's doing, he's kind of like, he's pushing the genre forward or something like that. It doesn't have that feeling. It's more of let's put something out and we can put out whatever because the people are going to listen to it. My fans are going to listen to it. But at the, then at the same time, he's just putting out stuff 
and working with different people to where the fan base doesn't follow the fan. Like some of your fan base stops at this album. Then you gain some new fans, but then they stop at the next one. Then you gain some new fans, but then some stop at the one after that. So it's like different. Some people say it's like versatility, but I, 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 I think it's an identity crisis. So it doesn't, there's nothing cohesive. There's nothing. It's just, it's like a staccato type of thing with him, with the, with the stuff that he's put out. But because it can also be background noise, <laughs> you get, it, it comes off as, as target music, but I don't see it as like most deaf hating. I just think like what, how he sees what hip hop is and the most popular artist, it's not, it's not in the same vein. I think just because they're so different and he's from a, a different era that it's hard to see the impact Drake has. You're, you, I think a lot of people see Drake in different ways. They don't see the totality of him. And, and that's what I'm getting at. It's the totality. Like, but it's so, but it's like, there's there, there you, it's hard to appreciate the totality of Drake because of he, he may make music. And like I said, he fans, fans will stop or they will only go as far as this particular album, but they don't go into the next one because, you know, you say they, they've been alienated or the, it's just not, they just don't, they, they're, they're expecting something better and it didn't happen, but there were new fans of Drake at that point. So it's not yeah. like he lost fans, but it's like he plateaued as far as the, the art being an artist. Well, I compare him to like a, like Taylor Swift. I think their careers kind of mirror each other where they were, they had a lot of respect and I, and, and I granted she's still, she's come back around to getting respect. But like, if you look at those first few albums from Drake, up until views, you know, nothing was ever the same. Um, I, I can't even remember the name of the albums anymore. There's been so many. Uh, if you're reading this, um, it's too late. It's too late. Um, uh, take care. So thank me later. Take care. Um, nothing was ever the same. And views are the studio albums. Um, and I know he had, you know, mixtapes and things like that. But like, I'm thinking like of those albums. I think those are great albums. I think those are hip hop albums. So, and I think, you know, if you go back, maybe that's considered the classic period of Drake, if there is one, <laughs> Drake's classic period. And I think that's where, you know, he was kind of neck and neck with J. Cole and, and with Kendrick Lamar on like, man, you know, who's, who's the best rapper right now? And I think at, you know, at this point, I think it's safe to say that like of that generation, Kendrick Lamar has kind of taken that title. <laughs> it kind of run with it. Like it's not even close anymore. But like, I I would say until maybe Scorpion, I would say that he was definitely hip hop. But like you just said, at this point, now he's just kind of, I mean, like, I think that's when he started making Target music. So like to say that half of his discography isn't hip hop, like I think if the statement's qualified with like, hey, he came out the gate really hard and he's just kind of been phoning it in and I don't think this is hip hop, I think that would have been the better statement. Versus just saying 
Thank Me Later is not hip hop. His mixtapes that brought him, you know, up to Thank Me Later aren't hip hop. I think also that from someone from most Def's era, um, to be considered pop was. like an insult (laughs) it's an insult yeah yeah um while at the same time uh hip-hop is the most popular genre in the world it seems like you know and if you make a catchy enough song you can you can be famous (laughs) um so yeah i think it's just a, a matter of like I don't, I don't think it's a, a jealousy thing. Um, it's I think it's just more of a preference thing as far as like, well, I like my rappers like this. You know, it's kind of yeah. that's kind of how I think about like the 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 Jordan Lebron debate. I want I my like star my play. to play like this. I want play them selfish. taking all the shots. The, with the when the game's on the line, I want them to take the shot. I don't want the making the right basketball play. I don't want that nonsense. I want you what shooting is this the ball. Basketball IQ. What is that? <laughs> he made he. Why LeBron pass up the shot? He he, you know he he had he, he was double teamed. When you go right through that double team, when you shoot over him, Kobe, Kobe, and then they Kobe show the Kobe Bryant. They show the, that Kobe the shot. Kobe Bryant four people. shooting over four people. <laughs> That's what he need to be doing. And it's like, no, that doesn't always work. <laughs> but oh, then at God. some at some points, though, like there was a game <laughs> last year with the Lakers. Um, they're playing the 76ers and they're down by one. And Russ, this is when Russ was still on the Lakers. He brings the ball up and LeBron didn't even try to get the ball. Like Westbrook is that guy who will take the shot, but in that moment, why isn't LeBron like he like let it happen? He didn't go get the ball. And some people want mm-hmm. someone to go get the ball. Kobe and Jordan be like, give me the damn ball. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't care who it is. I want the ball. <laughs> I'll never forget. The, the kick out to Daniel Marshall in the corner. <laughs> I, to this day, that was the right play. See? It's a, it, that's the thing, though. It's, it's just a preference thing. Some people want you to take the shot. Some want you to make the right play. And this is a guy who, back then, I didn't like LeBron. They'll tell you. I, I said he'd be a bust. I hoped he'd be a bust. And I was like, that's the right play. Like, Daniel Marshall should have hit that shot. <laughs> like, would you prefer a two or a three? Daniel Marshall's open in the corner for a three. Kick it out to him. He's open. Like, that's... <sighs> and But then they also neglect to understand, too, that who did Jordan kick it out to for three to win? Steve Kerr. But then we'll talk about that, though. <laughs> that never happened. Jordan kicked it out to himself for three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what they'll say. Jordan, oh no, Jordan kicked it to himself. That's how fast he was. LeBron ain't that fast, but Jordan was. <laughs> um let's see if there was anything. Um oh yeah, let me pull up the uh 
some other stories that I may have come across in the past uh, few weeks. Um, okay, here we go. So, I don't know if I if I mentioned this. Uh, I may have. There's a documentary coming out about the making of the song We Are the World. Yeah, you mentioned it. Uh, it's going to be on Netflix. The only person I saw that was interviewed was Lionel Richie. Um, I know Michael Jackson can't be interviewed for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there's any archive footage about him even talking about making that song. Uh, I think they talked to Quincy Jones. Um, so, yeah. Um, what else did I find? Oh, uh, well, I may have mentioned this to you already as well. The, I, don't, I can't remember when the CMAs were. They were back in November. <laughs> but uh, Tracy Chapman, the first black person to win Song of the Year at the CMAs for Fast Car. Did she accept the award? Um, she she was not. She did not attend, but she did release a statement. Okay. Okay. Uh, that she that it's truly an honor for my song to be newly recognized after 35 years of its debut. <laughs> so 35 years later. Um, but yeah, so props to Luke Combs. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> I saw this clip. I thought, I did, I thought this was interesting that there's a clip of um, Nicki Minaj was doing a show and um, the DJ started playing super bass. And she made him stop. <laughs> what? I guess she is. She trying to. Um, oh, I, trying oh to I, got, I got. I got the clip here. Hold on. Oh God. Oh, hold on. Oh. Oh. She says she don't like it. I couldn't imagine being. Oh, I'm sorry. Not Super Bass. Starships. Oh, God. That sounds awful. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can co-sign. Co-sign. Although, still, the statement remains. Um, I don't understand people who get sick of their own songs. I guess for me, because I've never made it, I would be eternally grateful if, like, if something off a of warm Georgia night or even the last song I just put out made it famous i swear 20 years from now you want to hear it i'll play it you want to hear it like it's just but I, I like, I, there's a reason you know, like, there's a reason why with this though like at in the in the span of like a few weeks maybe a few days like i think what really put nikki on the map as far as her like at like oh she can really rap was her verse on monster mm-hmm. that's what put her on the map but then, like, it seemed like a few days later, here's Starships, and these are two completely different songs for two completely different demographics. That was her old time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even, I was just like, that's weird. Like, who, if, if that was your, if that's your first interaction with Nicki Minaj, you would think she was a pop star. Yeah. Like, you would absolutely think she's a pop star. But Pink Friday had some poppy songs on it though i mean you know that's why the fact that you said super bass 
those two songs to me are almost like, you know, granted one talks about a dude that sells drugs, but still, you know, Super Bass and Starships are kind of two sides of the same coin, you know? So. Yeah. Um, okay. So one more thing. So we had the Golden Globes. Um, I wanted to try something here. So I'm going to play the song that won. Uh, what Was I Made For by Billie Eilish, uh, written by Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell. This is their second win in two years, second win in three years. They won for No Time to Die, uh, which was released, with, I feel like, two years before the movie came out. <laughs> um, let's see. What was... What was I made for? The thing that was funny about this is this is every Billie Eilish song ever. All her songs sound like this. This is every Billie Eilish song. But I'm not sure now what I was made for. So I'm sure that's at some poignant moment in the movie. So also what movie is it from? Barbie. Oh, God, I haven't seen that movie yet. Okay. Uh, another song from Barbie. This is Dance the Night. Have you seen this movie? No. Are you going to see this movie? I don't know. Has your significant other seen this movie? Uh, no. Okay. Mine has. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, I planned to watch it with her. And as, the, as we got further away from when it came out, I just lost the will to watch it. <laughs> I kept seeing clips on TikTok, and I'm like, this ain't my type of movie. So this is uh, Mark Ronson, Andrew Wyatt, Dua Lipa, and Caroline Allen. Uh, yeah, this Caroline is Allen co-wrote New Rules for Dua Lipa. So we have, also we have I'm Just Kin, which is sung by... Uh, yeah, and the top Ryan comment Gosling. says, I'm Just Kin was robbed. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he's also got a cover of Push by Matchbox 20 in the movie by all the Kins. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. All right. So also nominated. This is a full song. Huh. Also nominated. Uh, Road to Freedom from the film Rustin. Uh, written and performed by Lenny Kravitz. Hmm. What is Rustin? Uh, Rustin, it's a biopic about uh, Bayard Rustin, who is basically the uh, one of the primary architects of the civil rights movement. He organized okay. the March on Washington. He's not talked about very much. Primarily because he's he's gay. He was gay. I'm seeing that here. He's um, faces racism and homophobia. Mm. Yeah. Oh, this is Netflix. 
Dude, I'm telling you, these streaming movies are taking over, man. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to add this to my playlist. All right. Also nominated. Um, Addicted to Romance from the film She Came to Be. Uh, written by Bruce Springsteen. This is a romantic comedy with uh, Peter Dinklage, Marissa Tomei, and Anne Hathaway. Is this the? Is this the? We trying to get Peter Dinklage an Oscar? Is this what we doing? What is this? This is different. Okay. You got me. I'm gonna have to check this out too. And what's that? I said Marissa. I was looking at the cast. Okay. And last but not least, the silliest song. This one. The silliest song in the category. Princess Peach. Oh God! This got nominated. Yeah. I still haven't seen. Have you seen this movie? I have not. I haven't seen it either. But it's. I've heard this on more than I care to hear. It. So it's uh, Jack Black, Aaron Horvath, and Mike Jelinek who were uh, co-developed Teen Titans Go. Eric Osmond and John Spiker, uh, who is. Uh, who has worked with uh, Tenacious D. Oh, goodness. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I see this what in, was a I made of, for in a is, lot of uh, <laughs> talent shows, kid talent shows, kids performing that song. Uh, <laughs> why? I, guess I don't know. I've just seen it on TikTok a lot. Um, well, I thought when it came it was, out, I, I didn't know it was a real song for the movie. Yeah, I thought it was people were singing Peaches by Justin Bieber. And I was like, that song's got yeah. legs. And then I was <laughs> like, that's not, that's not Peaches. <laughs> not the Peaches I know, at least. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just thought that was... Uh, that was... Uh, an interesting uh, collection of songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get to the charts, uh, we'll get to my earworm of the week. And um, your cover of the week? I'm sorry, cover song of the week. Cover song of the week. Okay, my bad. <laughs> so, because I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> so um, I didn't ask for a ruling on this, but I think it, it's interesting to go back to. I've started a new playlist, of course. Uh, called actually the original. So oh, find, you did this before, so that's cool. Yeah. Do it, do it. Um, so one of my favorite songs from the '80s is uh, "Self Control" by Gloria Brannigan. I'm sorry, Laura Brannigan. She had a song called Gloria. Laura Brannigan. Gloria. <laughs> and um, 
it is a cover of a song by an artist named Raph. Um, I believe he's Italian. Okay. Um, <clears throat> make sure I have this right. You said it's yeah. called Actually the Original. It's the name of the playlist? That's the name of the playlist. I can't find it, but you got to send it to me. Let me see if I can make, I can make it a... Uh... Add to profile. Okay. Uh, see if it'll come up now. Um, so, hey, I have a collection of songs that were actually the original versions of those songs. Um, so, uh, yeah, Raph is an, an Italian singer. And, um, yeah, he, he did the song first. It, it, was an, it was a hit in Italy and Switzerland. And with Laura Branigan, kind of the stuff that she started off doing was uh, it was these Italian, Italo disco, post disco uh, songs that maybe maybe they were in Italian or maybe they were in German, but then they would be redone in English. Uh, Gloria is one of those songs that that she did. So and she did this one, too. So, um, yeah, I I like this one. So this is Self-Control by Raph. Uh, probably made more famous in America by Laura Branigan. And we'll be right back. That is Self Control by Raph. Uh, released in 1984. It's a good playlist. And Laura Branigan's song came out later that year. Yeah. And uh, you guys want to find the actually the original playlist? It's on Spotify somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um. All right, bring us back on the screen. There we go. 
All right, so we can get to the charts here. Um, and I'll go by what's been uh, number one since we last were on. Um, all right, here we go. All right, so this, since we were last on, uh, Cruel Summer by Taylor Swift was number one, and then Lovin' On Me by Jack Harlow, and then we're in December, so Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee, who became the oldest artist to have a number one song. <laughs> and then uh, All I Want for Christmas is You, of course, Mariah Carey ends the year, number one. Uh, then Brenda Lee starts off the year, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree is number one again, and then we're back to Lovin' On Me by Jack Harlow. Um, and I saw someone make a TikTok video that Lovin' On Me is now like the the white boy anthem. Why, because this is I'm Vanilla Baby? Yeah. Oh my God. Mm. Good That's song. where we are, man. That's where we are now. That's funny, though. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, because the holiday season is over, uh, <laughs> Taylor Swift was number 19 last week, and she's back up to number two with Cruel Summer. <laughs> mm. um, number three, Greedy by Tate McRae. Are you familiar with this song? Oh, yes. So the week after we um, took our hiatus, this would have been my earworm. I was obsessed with this song. Um, it was co-written by the Ryan Tedder. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm obsessed with it. Now, it's crazy because like everyone's like just like really kind of riding her hard right now. Like she's the greatest thing ever. She's good. She's talented. This is a great song, but I'm kind of like, let's pump the brakes, you know. But um, but I think it's a phenomenal song. They're calling her like Canadian Britney Spears or something. Okay. Good luck She's a much that. better singer than Britney Spears, though. <laughs> but, All right. At number yeah. four, we got Paint the Town Red. Uh, sampling um, Walk On By. Uh... Oh god, yeah, this song's huge on TikTok. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Uh number five, we got I Remember Everything by Zach Bryan and Casey Musgraves. Have you heard this one? I have not yet, no. Didn't know they did a collab. Uh this from Zach Bryan's self titled album. This might be me this might have me listening now. Mm -hmm. Alright, and number six, it was Uncharted last week. It had been as high as number two, but it was off the charts last week. Back up to number six, we have Snooze by SZA. Uh, I've been hearing this song a lot on Instagram and Instagram mm -hmm. reels. 
Uh, at number seven, it was number 32 last week. So these songs are coming back up because the holiday season's over. Yeah. Because <laughs> Mariah Carey is back on ice. <laughs> number seven is Water by Tyla. Uh, this was a... I'm learning the names of these songs. <laughs> yeah. This was another song all over TikTok with a, with a yeah. dance challenge on it. All right, number eight, the redeemable uh, question mark, Morgan Wallen with Last Night. Uh, this was number 36 last week. He's just in better. <laughs> All right, and number nine, the aforementioned Fast Car by Luke Combs. You know what would have been funny if this was because I guess it was Luke Holmes could not change the lyrics. Mm -hmm. If it was called Tracy Chapman presents Fast Car, <laughs> I would have I would have liked it. I think Luke Holmes would have done it too. <laughs> um, but yeah, the CMA Song of the Year, Fast Car, and in number ten, Agora Hills by Doja Cat. I feel bad that I know so many of these songs from TikTok and other social media. This makes me feel old. I'm trying to see what song was sampled here. Oh, it samples a... Uh, all I do is think of you. Um, and it, it's probably the troop version that was sampled. Yeah, they sampled the, the all I do is think of you is a, uh, it's originally done by the Jackson five, but troop covered it in the late eighties. Um, very, very good cover. So she sampled the troop version. So, yeah, I've been hearing that song a lot on TikTok and Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the top 10 singles. Um, no, I will not do the same thing for the albums. So, <laughs> uh, but let's look at the Billboard 200 albums. Number one this week. Well, actually, let's let's go back. Let's see if I can find the the albums while we were. I'm sure Pentatonix is in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's go to the albums while we were off. All right. So, um, Rockstar by Stray Kids, followed by For All the Dogs by Drake, then 1989 Taylor's version, then The World EP Finn Will by ATs, which is a uh, K pop group. Um,. And then Pink Friday 2 by Nicki Minaj. Then back to 1989 mm -hmm. by uh, Taylor Swift, Taylor's version. And then we start the year off with 1989, Taylor's version. But by next week, because on the website it says this, but on the wiki, next week, it will be one thing at a time. Back to one thing at a time 
by Morgan Wallen. Mm. So as of right now, um, before next week's charts, number one is Taylor Swift. Number two is Morgan Wallen, one thing at a time. Number three, For All the Dogs by Drake. Number four, Pink Friday by Pink Friday 2 by Nicki Minaj. Number five, Midnights by Taylor Swift. Number six, Lover by Taylor Swift. Number seven, SOS by SZA. Number eight, Stick Season by Noah Kahan. Number nine, Zach Bryan by Zach Bryan. And number 10, Folklore by Taylor Swift. So, <laughs> is it is the NFL audience coming back? Or is there are they flocking towards Taylor Swift? For her don't say have, that to the wrong fan, man. For have four, I'm some... just saying it's four albums, but they've been out for a while. Hey, it doesn't bother me. It just bothers a lot of people. You know, they don't like they don't like it. I'm just trying. I'm just asking what 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 is happening to where we have these results. I don't know because the era tour has been over for. He's coming after me. (laughs) How long? You know, a couple months. Yeah, so I know the movie's out, but yeah. All right, and um, let's look at the artist one hundred. Number one, she was number one last week. Uh, Taylor Swift. Let's see if anything had changed as far as the. Um... Oh, there's no. I don't have a history to go by here. That's okay. So. Um... Number one, Taylor Swift. Number two, Morgan Wallen. Number three, Drake. Number four, Zach Bryan. Number five, Olivia Rodrigo. Number six, SZA. Number seven, uh, Luke Combs. Number eight, Nicki Minaj. Number nine, Chris Stapleton. And number 10, Jelly Roll. Get a Jelly Roll. (laughs) It's interesting also that I don't know, maybe it's the time of year, but we have one, two, three, four, five, five and a half, depending on how you look at Taylor Swift now, uh, five and a half country artists. Um, are we in that era now where country is, country is the new hip hop right now? It's funny because I was going to say that. Because I think that Nashville has worked really hard to make country music as close to hip hop as they can with bro country. But then like you look at the artists like Zach Bryan and Chris Stapleton and Jelly Roll, they're not bro country. <laughs> so it's like, you know, like Zach Bryan is is more akin to a um ah oh God, what is his name? I can't think of his name now. He's the guy that everyone thought that the rich North Richmond, North of Richmond was supposed to be. Um, I'm blanking on names right now, but you know, the only, I mean, Morgan Wallen's kind of real country, but I don't know. I mean, that's only time will tell if it even, if this even continues, you know, mm. we're just coming out the holiday season. So, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because, um, I mean, we we have we talked about you know kind of the the what it takes to be in the top ten on this chart or to be on the chart at all, basically. Um, but Taylor Swift just put out Taylor's version, and because she's dating Travis Kelsey, she gets talked about a lot on social media. Um, to by, the chagrin of NFL fans, yeah. Uh, Morgan Wallen has the new album. Um, Drake just put out a new album and is putting out another one. No, no, he just put out the new album for all the dogs. Uh, Zach Bryan just put out his new album. Olivia Rodrigo, new album. SZA, um, new, well, putting a new single, but the album's still very popular. Not me for album of the year. Luke Combs. I guess I want I want to find out what is the like a cover of Fast Car. We've heard several covers of Fast Car before this one. Mm-hmm. What is it about this one in particular? Well, I mean, Luke Combs is big. You know, he's much bigger than a lot of other people that have done it. Um, and I imagine there's gotta there has to have been some sort of campaign. Like this benefits Tracy Chapman, you know. I know she's been the type to typically not allow people to cover her stuff, but like this had to benefit her. You've got one of the biggest country artists wanting to cover your song. Every time people ask about it, he's he like he's in a reverence of it, so he clearly respects the song. So it's like you couldn't have chose a better person to hit your wagon to. Like I would have been concerned if like this was Morgan Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> if this was Morgan Wallace, like all right. He's faking it, but you know, you got a guy who seems genuine about it. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe his management gets with her management and they're like, hey, we can make this thing happen. You know, he's got an old tape that he'll pull out and be like, you know, hey, man, my dad used to play this for me. And we'll say that he has your permission. It's a win win. And I think, you know, marketing is everything. That's what that's what I think, honestly. Yeah. Um for it to explode the way it did uh, was just, just interesting to me because I don't it, it seems like we may not be in a space to where it's going to happen with cover songs like that anymore no um, so for it to happen with this and for Tracy Chapman to, to be recognized um, in that way by a an, a part of the industry that I wouldn't say is going out of their way to ignore people of cover of color, but um, I mean, we talked about gatekeeping before. This that I think that's the most one of mm-hmm. the 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 biggest examples of gatekeeping in music is yeah. the country music industry. So just it, yeah. it just interesting for it to explode the way it did. Nothing against it. It's just it's just to see it happen. Like oh well, it, it's a song that you know we are familiar with <laughs> and, yeah. and now it's it, you know to introduce something to a new audience this is like this is like on a major level as far as like okay this it, introducing something to a new audience i haven't seen it exploded like this uh, i definitely don't think it becomes song of the year with a lesser artist regardless yeah. of the quality and, and of you, the cover yeah, you, or anything. you have you have one of the biggest the, the biggest artists in the genre right now so yeah that that uh that definitely helps 
All right, so that will do it for our music news. Um, went a little longer than, than I anticipated, but that's okay. Um, so we'll get to Ben's Earworm of the Week. All right, so this is a song by a band called Seventh Wonder. It was introduced to me by uh, a gentleman at work. I won't say his name, but if he happens to hear this, he knows who he is. Um, the name of the song is Alley Cat. Um, there's two versions of it. The one I'm looking for, the cover is a black cover because there's a live version and then there's a um, a studio version. Both are good, but I've been listening to the studio version a lot. Um, some great guitar work, just great musicianship in general, very reminiscent of like Dream Theater. It's Prague, so yeah. All right, so this is Alley Cat by Seventh Wonder. And we'll be right back. Alley Cat by Seventh Wonder from their album The Great Escape. And you can find that on our BTT YHT Earworms of the Week playlist on Spotify right now. So, uh, bringing in the new year with some Prague. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so um, we started this episode with uh, the song Upside Down by Diana Ross, uh, which was written by uh, Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. And we will be discussing 
uh, we'll be giving our Because Five musical marriages. And what we mean by musical marriages uh, is a songwriting uh, uh, songwriting and or producing um, tandem uh, with a songwriter producer with an artist. Um, they have an extensive catalog or discography, uh, several songs or projects that they worked on together. And the chemistry that they showed is uh, a major part of them being successful. So um, we'll be giving our, our Because Five. We have two honorable mentions each as per usual. And um, Ben, I will have you go first per usual. All righty, Uh So first one here, we're going to take it back. Um, Def Leppard and Mutt Lang. So had a let me pull my notes over here actually. So classic three run album. Uh, I'm going. Um, I'm, ju I'm just going to go y'all with the first song that comes to mind. Oh no, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So high and dry, which you know, bringing on heartache, which. The funny part that people used to talk about in the biopic from, um, you can even call it that, <laughs> from um, VH1 was how, like, he couldn't hit the note, but then somehow he just, deep down, he's pulled it out. He was able to hit the note. Mm. Um, so you get High and Dry, you got, and then you got the two biggest albums of their career, which really kind of made them who they were and kind of started that mutt-laying sound that I think Bob Rock kind of carried on as well but um pyromania and then hysteria so pyromania you got photograph you got fooling you got rock of ages hysteria you got animal pour some sugar on me which is playing right now and then you got hysteria the title track so just really like when you think of Def leopard that's what you think of and that's that mutt, that's mutt lang right there the fact had a one drummer stop them like they started making the anthems, the songs that like, you know, that that can fill an arena, that you can pump your fist to, that you can sing aloud to. That's Mutt Lang. Um, I, I I don't know what people actually attribute to the the start of the the hair band era. But mm -hmm. you could I, I there's an argument that at you know, when we talked about how, you know, with if there's one one or two groups from the same area, then that's where all the record execs flock to <laughs> to find that next one. <laughs> um, so even though these guys are from, they're from England, right? Yeah, they're um, So, uh, but I think they they kind of they kicked off that era of hair metal, um, where you have mm -hmm. all those those artists that you know were out on the Sunset Strip or whatever. Um, and had this kind of, and they, they sounded like this, yeah. and and some were you know more glammed up than maybe they should have been. They focused more on the image <laughs> than their music. Yeah. Um, but this, I this I look at Def Leppard as like the band that a lot of other bands copied or tried to emulate, you know, for those few years. Um, yeah. 
And and Mutt Lang is is to blame for all this stuff. <laughs> it <laughs> also really helped play, too. But yeah, he's the, the architect of all this. They had good players. So there are two guitar players whose name always escaped me. I think one's name is Phil Colleen. And um, I don't know why I can't think of the other guy's name. Um, Phil Colleen and Vivian Campbell are two of the more respected guitar players from that era of music. So... It, that also helped as well that you've got really talented melodic playing guitar players. they could shred but like when you listen to a song like hysteria they can be extremely melodic we listen to a song like animal extremely melodic so yeah um so yeah that that was your first honorable mention mm-hmm. um my first honorable mention uh Let's see where, where I'm going with this. Well, maybe <laughs> not. I don't know. Uh, my first honorable mention is Babyface and Tony Braxton. Ooh, it's a good one. Now, it, it started with this is um, Hurt You from their uh, collab album Love, Marriage, and Divorce because they were. Getting divorced at the same time, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, so, I think what what kind of sticks out to me is their how they like kind of fed off of feed off of each other on a song, mm-hmm. and Babyface and his uh, his his frequent collaborator, last name Simmons, Daryl Simmons. Daryl Simmons, yeah. Um, kind of knowing what to do with a voice like Tony Braxton's. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're able to, when you have a, such a unique voice like hers, uh, maybe some producers or songwriters don't necessarily like try to work with that, try to use that uh, to, to, to make something. And for... Um, for him to find a way to to use that voice and um, use what you know how do do what he does, <laughs> some writing and production yeah. wise to bring that out, um, basically making her a uh, a pop R and B star, and with uh, unexpectedly, I believe. So yeah. In, in doing that, I think, and then like I said, with with this album, they kind of picked up where they left off. I don't think they had worked together very much for a while, and just kind of picked up where they left off, and gave us and, a phenomenal record. Yeah, <laughs> for I know like you know R and B isn't looked at the same way that it used to in the '90s, but this is a very good R and B album, and I would recommend it to anyone who's a fan of it. Um, and there, there's a concept, <laughs> there's a story, there's, you know, and it, it may, it may help somebody in some way with the, with the content they put out. So, um, so I use this as an example of that's part of it too. Like having the chemistry of, even if you haven't worked together, they come back and put out something and it's amazing. Yeah. And I thought I, I remember it, was, it won the Grammy for best R&B album that year, too. Yes. I thought I remembered that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good album. 
<clears throat> All right, so that was my first honorable mention. Ben, what's your second honorable mention? All right, so my second one is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And a man we've covered on here before, Rick Rubin. Um, so this was one that when I was looking into it, I did not realize. Like, I knew they'd work together, but I didn't realize from Blood Sugar Sex Magic to Stadium Arcadium, they had worked together. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and claim to be the the greatest Red Hot Chili Peppers um, fan of all time, but the three albums I think were the best that they did under him. People may disagree. <laughs> Californication, which Scar Tissue's playing right now, by the way, in Stadium Arcadium, I think were where they could make that claim to be top five biggest bands in the world. Californication kicking it off, where they were just all over MTV. Um, by the way, you know, continue that. And then I felt like they kind of blew up again with Danny California. You just could not avoid them. Um, and of course, you know, Rick Rubin's production style is, is kind of a hands-off. Like he's not in there turning knobs. He's not in there setting up no. mics. He is a hired ear in the, in the sense, the greatest sense of the word. He will listen to your songs. He will give you notes. And he'll come back the next day and do the same thing. <laughs> he'll have you write a hundred songs and he will help you narrow those songs down. And some people like Corey Taylor don't like that. But you can't argue with his success. <laughs> yeah, you definitely you can't. You can't did. argue with the results. I mean, we saw that. The, <laughs> I, I didn't realize how hands off he actually was until the, the episode we did about the Dixie Chicks documentary. Dixie Chicks. He wasn't even in the Nothing studio. He was yeah, a producer. They, like, they went house. to his house. They went to his house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize he was. I thought he was at least there in the studio with them. No, he's just like, come on over. He's not wearing. He's not wearing shoes or socks. <laughs> he's sitting in his hippie room and he's like, yeah, you need a bridge here. Do this, do that, you know. But you can't argue. Even Slipknot can't argue with his results. No. Volume three, the subliminal, subliminal verses was their biggest record. So it's like you might not like it, Corey Taylor, but it worked. You know. Like, you paid him a lot of money, and you made a lot of money. <laughs> because I, t I tell you what, I, God, I, didn't, I just sounded like Hank Hill. Um, but that album brought a lot of people to, to Slipknot. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely see that. And with, with Ruben, you can probably put Rick Rubin with uh, uh, maybe with the Dixie Chicks or with Run DMC or... Yeah. Um, uh, with Slipknot, uh, and it, you know, with so, so with artists across different genres, um, mm -hmm. and it seemed like he with even with Jay-Z and yeah. it was like, and it seems like he didn't do anything. Uh, he kind of did, but it, it is kind of, it's one of those to where like he didn't do anything. <laughs> and then you realize, Oh, he did do something. <laughs> yeah. Um, side note, uh, the Falcons just interviewed Bill Belichick. Oh, that, that's hilarious. Jesus, man. <laughs> um, okay. So that was your second honorable mention. My second mm -hmm. honorable mention, uh, I talked about this on the last episode. 
Um, and that is Giorgio Moroder and Ooh. Donna Summer. Yeah. Um, we'll play uh we'll play hot stuff. Godfather of Disco, High Energy. Go. Um so as far as uh this tandem, I mean you could say they def- they defined an era. They definitely defined an era and for um to where you don't um you don't necessarily look at Donna Summer as I mean yes, yeah, she is black, but not like as just she's someone known around the world. Right? She has this uh this this fame around the world. And it's with music that's not completely uh in this R&B um this R&B box, this soul box, mm-hmm. uh, especially during that era, uh, she kind of she transcended the the, the genre uh, yeah. with with Giorgio Moroder with, um, and it's just basically his his interest in in um, in electronic music, uh, trying to move into that and make things that sounded big and, and orchestral and and then using lots of different sounds so. Um, it makes it him, him being uh, experimental with synthesizers because he he um, it started with uh, he's, he's uh, you say he's called the, the godfather of disc the father well, of disco well I thought it was that he is the father of disco father I of thought disco. godfather of disco but they don't uh, call him the godfather it's just the father it, of disco I would also call him like maybe the godfather of techno yeah no um, there's so much he influenced like it's a long list of things with what what they did together i think that's why we have techno that's why we have uh the the synth pop era of the 80s um house music new wave you know came from the kind of stuff that he was doing with with her and and also it, it expanded to the soundtracks as well um not that she was on in particular but you know, with him doing a call me with uh, Blondie, mm-hmm. uh, with him doing um, the never ending story song, uh, the Scarface soundtrack, um, uh, the Midnight Express soundtrack. So, oh, and Top Gun as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Did he scored that movie, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh but it working with her where she's the face of a genre and kind of and transcended it as well and her influence as a performer and an artist uh they they defined an era that's what i give them credit for and um, and so i told you about the album that that she did with him that was in the can and she went to a new label yeah. and they <laughs> and they shelved it <laughs> for 15 yeah. years, you know, because um, they, they felt that it was time for something new. But I mm-hmm. think you, you can't deny what they put out together and the influence that they had over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my uh, second honorable mention. So, Ben, okay. number five. 
a lot of these can be interchangeable, guys. We always say that. So number five for me, we've covered them on here before. Fallout Boy and Neil Avron. Um, so their first album um, that we covered that they well not their very first album but like their major label debut for Under the Cork Tree was produced by Neil Avron, um, as well as their second one, Infinity on High, and then their um, third one, Folia Deux. Um, all great albums all kind of push their sound forward so i really feel like on from under the court tree and um infinity on high kind of had similar sounds just kind of really big chunky kind of blasting guitars and big drums whereas on folia de is where they started getting really experimental you heard a little bit of it on um infinity on high but like you really hear it on folia de where you have like I don't care Tiffany Blues, which has a um, freaking um, a collaboration from Lil Wayne on it. Uh, America Sweetheart, which has a ton of vocal, like just a lot of vocal cues reminiscent of someone like Prince, whom I know that um, Patrick Stump was a big fan of. But like just throughout their career, he's kind of helped guide them. He came back for their most recent album. They strayed away from him. On um, Save Rock and Roll, they got a lot of production from Butch Walker, who I think then shaped pop rock music for probably the next five to six years, if not more. But I think their work with Neil Avron was so good. It was it was what kind of defined them initially, put them on the map. Of course, like any musical artist, you have to evolve. And you kind of saw it happening in Folia Deux. And maybe they kind of outgrew that sound because Neil Avron was really known for pop punk bands like A Newfound Glory. But as you kind of saw, maybe they liked where he went later and came back to him on this latest album, where they went a little bit more pop punk. So, yeah. Um, definitely, definitely someone that uh, helped define what their sound is, and probably you know, kind of sim- similar with Def Leppard, where it's like all the bands that came after are trying to catch this. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Didn't always work, but no, it did not. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, so many bands that tried and failed. All right, so that was your number. F- what number was that? Five. That was number five. Okay, so my number five. Yeah. My number five um, the, uh, connection with the the city that we live in, and that is Jermaine Dupri and Usher. Quite literally a marriage made in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, You Remind Me from 8701. And actually, you know what? I can't use that. He didn't produce that. He did do this. I was going to go with the um, My Way. Oh, I, I I went just with the same album as you got it. Back. Okay. Um, I think with uh, the thing that that makes this uh, such a, a great connection is that while Jermaine Dupri has a, a style, it like it kind of varied. Like you mentioned, my way, and then you have you mm-hmm. got it bad. 
and you have um, uh, uh, confessions um, and nice and slow and you, you so you have like where yeah it's R&B but it's also it, it has a it's it's pop enough to where it can like cross over to other audiences and mm-hmm. then it there's up tempo there's ballads there's the the slow jams yeah. uh so it shows how uh versatile Jermaine Dupree as a, is as a songwriter and for him to have that with an artist to where you're not writing the same kind of song for this one artist so it makes them yeah, look no, versatile phenomenal. as well um so it seems like you know a guy who is a, is a rapper. You wouldn't <laughs> expect Dupree it. is a rap. You wouldn't expect him to write a song like this. That's I think why he's so <laughs> underrated as a producer and as a writer. Like how many people knew that Jermaine o- um, Jermaine O'Neal? I've been playing 2K. Sorry, <laughs> Jermaine Dupree. <laughs> how many people knew that he was the primary songwriter on um, "Always Be My Baby"? Yeah, you know. Like he gave Mariah Carey two of her biggest hits. This, that one, and um, uh, uh, we belong together. We belong together. Yeah. You know, twenty years later, almost, and then he gives Usher one of his biggest hits. Like it's like the dude can write. That's I think that's one of his most underrated qualities. Yeah. Because everyone sees him as a rapper. You know. Um. But yeah, he is a uh, a, a gifted writer, and um. For him to have, like, you know, say, work with Usher, I think he worked with uh, with Mariah Carey and or someone else that I, I can't think of right now. But um, yeah, but this is for him to have these different kinds of songs with Usher, put him into you know a new stratosphere, and you know how many of those songs will he do for the Super Bowl halftime show? Will Jermaine Dupri come out? Will you wouldn't like recognize him outside of Atlanta? I don't know. I saw some high school, I guess this must be a rich high school, did their own version of Usher's halftime show. And for some reason, I don't think this will happen, but their opening song was You Don't Have to Call. <laughs> <laughs> it was a I have to find the video and show it to you, but so we'll see. I'm I I'm, I haven't been this excited for a halftime show in a long time. I'm so excited. All right, let's go to number four. All right. So we got uh, for me Janet Jackson, and as they're always called in every TV show or movie I ever see, Jam and Lewis. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> no one ever says the whole thing. It's just Jam and Lewis. Um, we'll go back to where so it started. This one, yeah. So this one's huge. Um, they've done, I mean, everything together. I feel like this is yeah, quite literally the definition of a musical marriage. Um, I don't think she's really after control. Has she worked with anyone else? <laughs> um, I mean, like recently, maybe, but like she worked with Jermaine Dupree. Okay, yeah, I forgot on Demita Joe, right? Yeah. Um, and 
uh, that that's really it. I, that's only what yeah. I can think of. It's like, does she, she do that her circle tight. song? Um, yeah. The albums that matter. Yeah. You know, they were right there. You know, from her finding herself to her becoming essentially, I mean, like, dare we say, you know, um, Velvet Rope was Neil Soul before Neil Soul, maybe. Yeah. You know, that's the way love goes. Very soulful. I don't know. What was on? Um, uh, hold on. That's the way love goes was on Janet. Was on Janet. Um, ah, God, what's the name of the song? Got Till It's Gone. Got Till It's Gone, yeah. Was on the Velvet Rope. Very neo-soulish. Um, but no, I guess Janet too, kind of then, because that's the way love goes, is very soulful. Yeah. But in any case, um, the sound has been good and has been consistent the entire her entire career w- working with them. They've always, whenever they come together, they make magic. It's been really good stuff. All right, so... Uh, that is your number four. Mm-hmm. All right. So my number four. Um, what did I have? Okay. So my number four is um, from all the way from Virginia, um, Missy <laughs> Elliott and Timberland. Oh yeah. Um, this was a, a matter of two people who it seemed like they didn't really. It was kind. Of, I guess kind of like you know how we talk about. I talked about with, with with certain vocalists where producers don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. This is a matter of artists not knowing to do what to do with a producer, like how to <laughs> how do I work with this with this person, like with the sounds that they're making. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these two were able to kind of like sort that out, where people weren't sure what to make of them. Is Missy Elliott is she a rapper? Is she a singer? Um, is she a songwriter? The answer is yes. All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you have um, have Timbaland, who is willing to experiment. He's willing to try new things all the time, and that's where how he's gotten where to where he is. Mm-hmm. He's always doing new things. Um. So. Um. And then able to like Missy isn't the like the necessarily the 16 bars kind of rapper not necessarily Mm -hmm. all the time not Um, all the time but able to make a song out of like with this with get your freak on it doesn't seem like it's a whole lot it's not a lot going on it's not it's really not a lot it's so sparse but they made it this Mm -hmm. massive hit it's the same thing with um the rain that's not yeah. <laughs> it's not a whole lot to that song but uh, uh you know adding the visuals as well they made it a massive hit so it's yeah. kind of like they not that they cobble things together but it's kind of it's a it's a minimalist type of thing where they just um 
that they, they make something happen without doing a whole lot. So not that it's low effort. It's just they're keeping it things very simple, keeping it very yeah. simple. Mm-hmm. And um, but also making it sound like the mo- like something you've never heard before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that that's what I like about them. So that is my number four. OK. All right. Number three. All right, so uh, keep it in the family here. We got Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, and they made some great work. And I remember I was doing some research on this. Um, There's people on each side that feel one or the other gets too much credit (laughs) for the success here. So I always felt this was an interesting one because there's some contention, you know? Of course, you know, Michael, after bad goes in a different direction goes and works with teddy riley for the most part on dangerous and but you get three classic albums off the wall thriller and bad not yeah and bad three albums that you could say really kind of were the jump off point for you know what michael jackson would become he's already you know he's coming out from the jackson five he has some solo albums but nothing like these three and so, you know, he even said, like, when he was looking for, I think it was when he was on the set of The Wiz, he's talking to Quincy. He's like, I want to do an album. Do you know anyone who could produce it? And eventually they decided that Quincy would do it. So, like, it's like, was he even looking to work with Quincy? Of course, at this point, Quincy Jones is highly respected, right? A highly respected composer, producer, writer, musician. And he puts together over the next three albums like an all-star roster of people to work with Michael. Granted, you know, Michael writes a lot of really good songs. He's the talent. But I think there's just, you know, as good as the stuff was they put together, there does seem to be a little bit of contention just like on who should get the most credit. And full stop, I don't know if Abel listened to this album. Him and I had a very long discussion about this on where credit lies because one of the things i said to him was that quincy jones is just as much of you know responsible for the success of these albums as michael and his thing was well no one cares about that i was like people who know care about it musicians care about it i understand that like your average fan might not know nor care who quincy jones is but i was like but people who know know exactly who quincy jones was i was like Quincy Jones was highly respected before this album. And I said that the difference was before Off the Wall, Quincy did not need Michael. If no. Quincy never worked with Michael Jackson, he still had been one of the most respected composers, jazz composers, he, he still producers of all dude. time. He, he still, still puts, puts out, out the, the dude. dude. <laughs> like he's still one of the most respected of all time. Without Quincy Jones, though, we don't know what Michael becomes. And I don't mean that as disrespect to Michael but at, at all. The, the, the thing is, there was kind of a, it was a little bit of a crossroads. It's, I think that's something yeah. that's not too, talked about too much. Yeah, a little really bit of a crossroads that, okay, yeah, the, the this is the Jacksons era when they're off of Motown. And he had done some solo albums on Motown, but he was, you know, promoted as this teeny bopper artist. And if he sees himself now as a serious songwriter, who's going to help him bring that to life? Um, And I just wonder who would have done that in the 80s, you know? 
in, well, I guess at this point in the late the, 70s. The, yeah, the late 70s. <laughs> you know, Who's yeah, he, there to he, do he that? did he did write Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, but there was something there was some some conflict on that. He didn't want the violins yeah. that come in. On that and how song. iconic is that? <laughs> he didn't want the violins, and Quincy's like, "No, you, you want the violins." And then it becomes, yeah. you know, one of the uh, the best known parts of the song. Yeah. So yeah. So um, I just feel like you got to give him some credit. Even the the drum intro. Granted, he didn't play it, but you know, there's that direction he, to the drummer. I need something iconic for the drum opening for, uh, for rock, rock with, with you. you. Yeah. So. You know, there's just a lot. And some people even say, like, as the albums went on, you hear less and less of Quincy's um, of Quincy's influence. But I still think everything that he learned from working with Quincy, he took into the rest of his career. And I think that's what makes them working together, you know, so iconic. But, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, all right. My number three. Um, this is probably the one of the, the most underrated uh, selection on my list, <laughs> and um, hold on, I'm trying to find the song that I wanted to put on there. Want to uh, use an example? Okay, <clears throat> and that is Dion Warwick and Burt Bacharach. Ooh, okay, okay. Um, that's not what I expected to hear, <laughs> but I should have. So, yeah, I think that what is underrated about what's underrated about Dionne Warwick is that it wasn't her voice isn't overpowering. It's very um, I can't think of a better word than digestible, but not that it's like, but it, it's. It, it's, not as an insult, I feel you. Yeah, not yeah, not as an insult, but it's it's very easygoing. It's 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 there's jazz influence, but it's like it's not um, it's not all over the place. It's kind of like in the pocket kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I would consider her more more pop than R and B. Um, but. It's a it's a jazz influence, but not necessarily. It's not jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, Burt Bacharach, with his strong songwriting, um, made it made it work with her. And um, to where she, it's not. It, it doesn't that she doesn't have to sing just certain types of songs. She could sing anything that you write for. Her. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then the songs become these you know pop standards and tons of covers and um, it was also also a like in a way um, it seems like kind of, it's very well produced and it's it seems sophisticated and you know mature yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, she, it's, it's anything like wild or crazy. These mm-hmm. are, the songs are for people who are, um, you know, just something to like, it, it's something, something bouncy and, and happy. That's <laughs> what a lot of her songs are. 
and yeah. it's not and it's not something to, to where it's um it's it's just very easy going her music is very easy mm-hmm. to listen to um and I think kind of that that whole thing with with her and Burt Bacharach that, that's kind of the thing that they built is to have this this uh, legacy of pop music that's it's fun to, to listen to and, and look back on. <laughs> I think yeah. it, and I think it's underrated because um, you know she's not always looked at in the same vein as the other black female singers of that era like Aretha Franklin or um uh or Gladys Knight or um Diana Ross, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but they they did so much too, together. That- it's hard to it's hard to separate the two to me. I, I hate the fact that I feel that Burt Bacharach, whose name does not get near, mentioned nearly enough nowadays, will be lost to time because this, you know, people don't care to go back and look a lot. Yeah. And he was such a prolific writer. <laughs> like he's, he's quite literally one of the most important songwriters of all time. Um, And it's just, you know, he doesn't get mentioned a lot because I guess he's not cool. I, I don't know. It's it's yeah. Yeah. It all depends on how you look at how you look at him. Like, do you think his music's cheese? Or do you like see the or do you like hear what, you know, kind of the, the sound that he may be going for? Um and how these are like um I think people like look at songs that are pop in a certain way. Mm-hmm. They look down yeah. on them as if they're not in a der- I was gonna say in a yeah. derogatory way. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's part of it as well. Um why he doesn't get the the credit that he should. Yeah. All right. I didn't realize he was just short of an EGOT. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just short of an EGOT, man. Uh, he did write one of the cheesier Academy Award winning songs of all time, uh, Arthur's Theme, with Christopher Cross. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> Making your way through New York City. <laughs> all right. Uh, number two. All right. Here we go. And, and I'm not going to lie. I kind of put these here because rock producers don't get a ton of love. We don't talk about a lot, them. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say a ton of love. They just don't get a ton of run. So we're going to go with two rock producers for the last two. So the uh, first one, we've talked about their first album with him, Bob Rock and Metallica. Um, so going from the Black Album, Load, Reload, and yes, dare I say it, I'm going to say it, Saint Anger, what? <laughs> so... Wasn't that uh, the because I don't know I don't know if the the drums are still a a, a, a conversation? Um, oh, they're anymore. absolutely still a conversation. Uh, this one <laughs> it sounds like someone um, just hitting a, an empty beer keg or something like that. Yeah, it's just it's really ringy, you know, and it's the antithesis to his normal drum. Like normally, Bob Rock's drums on Metallica albums. Lars just sound like the largest 
biggest snare drum you could ever think of. And then like he just completely strips them of all of that stuff on Saint Anger. And it just sounds like a doom. Like it just sounds mm-hmm. like he's just hitting the side of a metal keg. And I care what anyone says, I love I, I do love some of that album. I especially love it when people take Saint Anger's drum kit and put it on other albums. You'd be surprised how good it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> um but this is the era where people, you know, like you've got a lot of people who fall into one of two categories, pre-Bob Rock and post-Bob Rock. So they like, you know, Ride the Lightning, Justice for All. Um, and um, why can I think of the other album? Ride the Lightning and Justice for All. Um, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh... uh what is it? What is it? What is it? Please don't be mad at me, metalheads. Uh, that that date before him or after? Before Master of Puppets. That's the yeah, Master album of Puppets and Justice for All. And, yeah, so you yeah, got Ride the Lightning and Kill Them All. And Kill Them All. So you've got those albums, and then you know they want to get you know they're big already, but they they change their sound. They go for the self-titled The Black Album. They hadn't cut the hair yet. But that sounds a little bit different. <laughs> Inner Sandman, Nothing Else Matters, and Wherever I May Roam. Kind of a different sound. Then they just blow the doors open with load. They cut their hair. They sound like they're in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Reload, same deal. And then St. Anger is just... I, I think that's where they lost a lot of fans, old or new. Uh, what, was, what was Garage Inc.? <laughs> Garage Inc. was the cover album. That was the one that had um, Turn the Page, Tuesday's Gone, okay, Whiskey yeah. in the Jar. Yeah. Great album. Great album. But yeah, that was all covers. And then SNL. And I mean, was they the did stuff in between album. there because they had Reload. Between Reload and St. Anger, you had Garage Inc., you had Metallica SNM, where they did the collaboration with the uh, San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, Michael Kamen. Yeah, and then, of course, the song that started it all. Um, started their really started the downfall which was i disappear because that was the song that got leaked on the napster and that's when lars came out and said um you're stealing and all that stuff i made a lot of people mad <laughs> and it's like they they weren't viewed the same for a very very long time but i've gone on record by saying that lars was right and anytime anyone wants to have a conversation about that we can but <laughs> yeah all right, um, so that's your number two. Yeah. Um, my number two, uh, we've talked about it already, um, but that is Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. Um, I think that with, um, like I said before, it's, and I, and, I, and I agree with you also that Quincy didn't need Michael and it wasn't that Michael needed Quincy, but it was mm-hmm. more that um, if you're looking for a producer for your album, why not get why not a Quincy? Why not get the best yeah. producer you can get? The best exactly the best producer out there at the time, you know. Exactly. So, um, but but for him to take all of that and you know it's. 
maybe it was over credit. You know, it's a Jerry Jones, Jimmy Johnson type of thing. Where that's a perfect that's a perfect analogy for yeah. their you know for the all the success. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's my uh, number two. We can we've already talked about it, so we can go to your number one. All right, so this is a guy who I think probably deserves his own episode as well. Um, so STP, which is I'm sorry, Stone Temple Pilots, and Brendan O'Brien, um, who I think is one of the most prolific rock producers of the last 30 years, if you look at his track record, but relating him to um, the work that Stone Temple Pilots has done. So Core, Purple, and Number Four. So three album, a three album, excuse me, a Tiny Music songs from the Vatican gift shop, which isn't really one of my favorites, but does have my favorite song by them on there, which is Tripping on a Hole in a Paper Heart. Fun song. Um, in the background, you hear Interstate Love Song from Purple, which is probably their most known song, I would say. Like, that's the one that everyone knows. Um, but you got like Sex Type Thing, you got Plush, um, uh, creep. Vaseline, Creep. Um, you got Sour Girl, which is probably my second favorite song by them from number four. So a lot of really, like just really kind of help mold their sound. I would say like Core and Purple, you know, that was when they were really kind of just kind of developing what they wanted to sound like. And I think a lot of that was shaped by Brendan O'Brien. I will say I was very close and I put this in my notes. I was very close to talking about his collaborations with Pearl Jam, but I chose to go with STP instead just because I liked the STP work better. Um, I do think the Pearl Jam run was great. (laughs) He's done some really good stuff with Pearl Jam, but like, in terms of you know Brendan O'Brien and being that you know that guy that producer, um, you know some of the people he's worked with, um, he mixed the Temple of the Dog album. He produced you know he produced a mix ten. Um, he engineered Shake Your Money Maker by the Black Crows, um, Get a Grip um, by Aerosmith, Super Unknown. Um, Matt, he did work with Matthew Sweet, Evil Empire, which some people have, I've heard some people say Evil Empire is one of the best produced albums of all time. Sound guys use that album in live shows to mix their, li- their live sound. Mm. Um, Yield with um, with um, Pearl Jam, Significant Other by, um, by Limp Biscuit, Issues by Korn. Conspiracy of One and Defy You by The Offspring. Like, he's just been Drops of Jupiter, Love, Hate, Tragedy by Papa Roach. Like, he's been a part of some of the biggest moments in rock music of the last 30 years. And and he's just, and it's always consistently been good. Yeah. All right. So that's your number one. Um, yeah. My number one is the one we've already um, we've already discussed, and that's Janet Jackson with, um, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Jam and Lewis. Jam and Lewis. <laughs> um, the thing that I also appreciate about about this musical uh, marriage is that as she got 
older and the sounds change, so mm-hmm. did they. They yeah. they adjusted um to a new to you know new song to a new to new styles basically. Yeah. And um you know, so it kept her um it kept her uh current uh for a very long time. And um that's not something you see. It's that I mean you know, you feel like if at the I, I don't know if she would if it was like, well this one works so we'll keep going and they just kept going mm-hmm. <laughs> because um you know, now it's like, well, if it doesn't work with this producer, then I'm just going to get somebody else. Or you don't get um, albums where it's one producer anymore mm-hmm. or a producer does, you know, a majority. And I mean, majority like 80, 90 percent. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are so many. Um, I, I think we talked about this before. I can't remember who said it exactly, but for somebody, something like. Like Nas is Illmatic. Uh, as influential as it was, it kind of changed how albums are produced, how rap albums are produced forever. Because yeah. he had all these different producers. He had mm-hmm. DJ Premier and Large Professor and Pete Rock and a couple of others <laughs> on this one album. And it, it was it would normally be one producer for the whole album. And mm-hmm. she's kind of kept this formula of having these producers for all of her stuff. Yeah. Well, outside of her very first two albums, like the ones before Control that no one talks about. Yeah. <laughs> that was just like her brother though. Forward is 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 uh with Jam and Lewis. Yeah. Uh yeah, like with like with Michael, like the 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 solo albums that were on um on Motown. Motown. Yeah. There some there are a couple of songs but there's not like the albums that stand out like you yeah. had the song the song ben from the, the movie ben <laughs> and um yeah. got to be there so there was a couple of hits but not like an album where like oh wow like that album when he was a like you know work. 14 or something yeah <laughs> you know it, it doesn't it's it's yeah. not like that yeah. um so having that um you know, and the thing that I thought about this with with this topic is that, you know, I think knowing the producer and the artist, like knowing each other and and trying and making an effort to to work together, yeah, that that kind of stuff matters. Where it's like you're actually working to put together a song or a complete album. Mm-hmm. Um, while in a lot, I think in in music now. It, it, there's still some of that a little bit, but not as much. And it's more just, you know, a producer who's also the composer just has something. He, he already has this song ready to go. They just need a vocalist on top of it. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, it's it's uh, kind of like how, I talked about, how we talked about with Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards giving a song to Sister Sledge. Here, sing this. Um, so it's it's um it's something that is we don't see a whole lot of 
um, anymore. So this is definitely one of those that that I can appreciate, man. You look at the who produced her album starting after starting with Control. Everything after that, you know, she's worked with. And this is a, a over. Um, this is a almost a forty-year relationship, musical relationship. Don't say that. Now I feel old. Yeah, so do I. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it's something that you know that can't be. It, it can't be overlooked, though. It really can't. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was my number one. That will complete our list. Um, Any ones that you left off of significance? Um, well, some that I felt may have been cheating because they they're 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 artists. They're listed as artists together, like mm-hmm. Gangstar. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. I uh, like that. That doesn't seem very fair. Um, um, I considered George Martin and the Beatles, but I don't like the Beatles, so <laughs> it would have felt disingenuous. Um, I considered uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, but I didn't feel like there was enough. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like they didn't work together as much as everyone thinks they did. Yeah, um, it's or, just what they did was so big. It just seems like you yeah. Know, uh, one that would have been like very underrated, I think, um, or very obscure would be uh, Tupac and Johnny J. Okay. <laughs> um, they did they did a lot of stuff together, um, and uh, I, I left off Shania Twain and Mutt Lang. I think that's a very obvious one, but mm-hmm. I just like what he did with Def Leppard more, and I didn't want to put him on twice. So. Um, yeah. Organized noise and outcast. Yeah, I didn't think about that one until you just said yeah. it. Why did I think about that one? Uh, oh man. And um, uh, and I I thought about why you know we started with um Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards with Diana Ross, but they only did that one album together. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other one I would have considered with them would be uh. Um, Sister Sledge, mm-hmm. um, but I I didn't think they're there. While that is that is that does fit the definition, um, it didn't crack the the top five for me or it's seven. So my last one that I left off, other than Taylor Swift and Jack Antonoff, because that's too easy. Um, an underrated one, John Creed and John Kurzweig. Um, so they used the first. This used the same producer for all three albums. And two of those albums, My Own Prison was a big album, but Human Clay and Weather ended up being two of the biggest albums, rock albums of the early 2000s. And um, you really hear like how their sound kind of developed over those three albums from being very raw to being very polished by the second and third albums. Uh, another one that I, I missed out on, uh, that, well, that, that just missed my list, is um, Mark Ronson and Amy, Amy Winehouse. It's mm. a good um, one. That was uh, that's uh, one another one of the more underrated um, collabs. Marriages. Remind me to share with you a TikTok video. Um, there's this like seven or eight year old kid who's just like this musical whiz. Oh yeah, when he he did uh, Music Soul Child, he has so many yes! of those. He has a oh, lot of those. That was so good. Yeah, I, I follow him now. And there was and some there was some ninety song he was doing 
but he didn't like look up any lyrics. He's like, I, I can't remember the, I, I was a, I can't remember what 90 song it was exactly, but he couldn't remember the lyrics. So he just made up his own and, <laughs> and it just it fit perfectly. Yeah, this kid is this kid is way too talented for his age. Like he's he's scary talented. Yeah, and he's just like, watching him work. And for those is who scary, uh, like let's see if you can find his name. Um, but the thing is, like he like you said, he's seven years old, and he'll just he'll decide to record a song. And he's he's he'll listen to it and then like figure out how it sounds. So he's using Fruity Loops or some kind of DAW to 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 replicate the song. And then he's playing all the instruments and he's doing all the vocals. He's engineering himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at at seven, so it's um, it's 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 just it's great to see just because it's like but you don't expect this from me um his name is miles bonham okay and he has incredible he has incredible taste in music yeah um because so i saw the half crazy one that you're referring to is the first one that i saw but then he also has a cover of girl by the internet like this like (laughs) who's teaching this kid (laughs) And so the reason I bring that up, though, is because there's an episode where, or a video, where he covered, he did the same thing with um, Amy Winehouse, um, Valerie. And yeah, I saw that he one. Gets to meet Mark Ronson. I saw that one. Yeah. Like, yeah, but this kid is, you know, and normally, I'm not a huge fan of people putting their kids on TikTok. Like, I actually usually I'm, I'm told like, don't do it. But like, my God, am I glad they decided to share this kid? Because this this kid is like so talented; it's not even fair. Yeah. Like, I I hope he continues to do well because like it's good. If he doesn't, it'll be a letdown. <laughs> <laughs> if he doesn't, it'll be a letdown because it, it makes me think of Tony Royster Jr., um, who was that kid drummer who had like the incredible drum solo. And like now he's a he's like you know he was he grew up and became a really great session player, but like you you got to do something big. You can't just make you can't just have a page like this where you're just wowing everybody and then you just become a CPA. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> just can't do that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Miles Bonham. If you like it, check him out. He's a phenomenal musician. All right. So that'll do it for our. Um... Because five musical marriages, um, there's no playlist for this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but y'all, y'all get it. Um, so we'll get to my earworm of the week. Um, this was from my fall 2023 playlist. Uh, just like the 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 last episode we did uh, with. Um, Young Gun Silver Fox, but this uh, this is uh, someone else that I saw on social media, Brady Watt. Uh, if you're familiar with Brady Watt, I'm not, but I have been getting myself familiar with Young Gun Silver Fox. So <laughs> thank you for that. But no, I, I'm not familiar with uh, they'll, this. They'll be in Atlanta in a couple of weeks, I think. Really? Yeah. Um, huh. but Brady Watt, uh, from the videos I saw of him on Instagram, he's a, a bass player. And he would mm-hmm. do the bass lines from certain hip hop songs. And then as he got popular, 
the rappers on that song, the original rappers on that song would do part of the song uh, oh. with him in the video. Um, but he put out a an EP, I believe this is. Um, oh, this is a single, as far as I know. Uh, called Without You, uh, featuring Conway the Machine and Talib Kweli. And um, it'll play here. So we're going to play that Without You by Brady Watt, Conway the Machine, and Talib Kweli. And we're right back. It doesn't matter without you. I'm sad. Spit the truth over piano, I feel sanctified. My back to the wind, my head above the clouds. They was hating low key, I thought you would be proud. The odds stacked against us, but we made it even. I've been an angel investor, they still trying to wing it. Angel head pasta, boy, you see we eating. Bunch of spades on the table, yellow tells you see me. Lose it all, lose it all. In a world without you, this shit don't matter at all. Man, they was hoping I'd fall. Put a few million in the wall and I'm about to add a few more so we good forever. You know you compliment my style, we look good together. You got that shit on, I'm loving the way you put together. You see I pull up any hood, you know I'm good wherever. And them dudes can catch a bullet whenever, cause over you I will We know the drop the top. Pops taking pictures, cause we the couple you got to watch. She got the chowder with the lobster stock. Lemon ricotta pasta tasted hotter at the mobster spot. They wonder in the museum, she not a hot and top. They would bottle her essence and sell that shit at the body shop. The battery in my back, I call it copper top glowing. She's so divine, she know the time like a pocket watch. We in the ocean, we got yachts to dock. You with a bunch of dudes at the club with them sparklers on your bottle tops. Your story bore me, I forgot the plot. Plus, it's full of holes like when my youngest try to convince me to cross the side. That shit be fishy in a cobble pot. Got me about to jump the broom and start breaking glasses like Mazel Top. A coat following like Papa Doc. Plus, she got original flavor like Rockefeller and Rocker Block. That Brady Water Bop. Lose it all. All right, that is Without You by Brady Watt. Featuring Conway the Machine and Talib Kweli. Uh, right now it's a single. Um, yeah, and he has a he has another song with I think with Freddie Gibbs and one with Melanie Fiona and uh, West Side Gun and DJ Premier. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I like that. All right. Um, oh, he also has a, uh, I think the segment was called bass and bars, but he has a, um, uh, he has a bass and bars version of King without a crown with Maz Yahoo. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. 
which is crazy because whoever played bass on the live version at Stubbs, good bass player. So I'd be curious to see what he did with this one. Uh, so yeah, that'll bring us to the end of this episode. Um, as uh, the Eagles are on the verge of losing. Uh oh, they're down. They're down by sixteen in the fourth. I didn't know there was a playoff game. We're in the playoffs, right? Yeah. There were two games That's, today. that's what I thought. Okay. But yeah. Um, what should we end the show with? Um. <laughs> I was going to say Saint Anger. Um, <laughs> I would end with... Uh... My vote would be just because it's my favorite song from my number one artist would be tripping on a hole in a paper heart. But I don't know if you have any protests or anything, but. Let's do it. That song is incredible. There's just so much going on in it. And the DeLeo brothers, man. All right. So I'm going to do tripping on a hole in a paper heart by the Stone Temple Pilots. Thank you, everyone, for listening or watching wherever you are. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. Peace. Peace. Yeah.